Welcome, you're listening to Seeking Wealth, where we talk about all things investing. Now let's begin. Here's your host, Scott Salaski, CEO of First Metric. First Metric. everybody. You're listening to episode number two of Seeking Wealth. Hopefully everyone's had an opportunity to listen to our first ever episode of Seeking Wealth, uh, which we discussed investment goals and rebalancing. On today's show, we're going to take a little bit of a different turn. Uh, We're going to talk about top mistakes that investors make with their portfolios. And some of these are pretty timely considering we're getting towards the end of 2017 And these are some things that you should be aware of in your portfolio. So let's kick it off with our first investment mistake that many individuals make. That first mistake is not having an investment plan. So let's break that down. You may think that you have an investment plan because you're simply investing. But the question is, is your investment plan written down, documented, where you can go back and reference that plan and determine if your current investment strategy is in sync with the original written investment plan. So in your original investment plan, you should have a number of items in there. The first item you should have is what are your goals? What are your investment goals? What are you trying to accomplish by investing? As we talked about in our prior podcast in episode number one, we talk about the concept of investing should not take place unless you have investment goals. Don't invest without investment goals. That's a roadmap for investment disaster. So the first thing you should have in your investment plan is what is your investment goals? For a lot of folks, those investment goals are a big one, and that's typically retirement. What amount of money they may need at retirement, what kind of income they need at retirement. The next area of your investment plan should focus on What asset allocation is your account going to be managed at? In other words, how much do you need in stocks and how much do you need in bonds? The overall risk of the portfolio is what we're talking about here. So once that's determined, then that's documented in the plan, and then you can get into breaking down that level of risk between stocks and bonds, more granular in what we call sub-asset classes where you may have exposure to U.S. stocks, international stocks, on the bond side, a variety of different bond asset classes. And you would put target asset allocation percentages for each of those broad asset classes between stocks and bonds and the different sub-asset classes in the portfolio. So that will get documented in an investment plan. And then also the next step is, putting down how the accounts are going to be managed. Uh, How are you going to rebalance the portfolio? Is the portfolio going to be rebalanced annually based on a upper or lower limit, uh, based on, you know, some anniversary date? There's a whole bunch of different ways you can rebalance a portfolio. But the most important concept is actually getting the rebalancing done. So those are some key areas of an investment plan. In a future episode or blog, we may discuss in more detail all the different ways of rebalancing a portfolio uh, and also designing an asset allocation, setting investment goals, and a number of other topics. But today we'll keep it pretty simple, give a little summary for each of the 
mistakes that we typically see investors make. So the first one is not having an investment plan. Number two is focusing on past performance. Past performance is exactly what the name implies. It's past. That's not performance that you had or that you will have going forward. That's performance that the fund or the stock or the bond that you're looking at had performed. So what is the correct way to look at performance? Well, unfortunately, there's not a great way to look at performance because all the performance, whether you look at annualized performance or you look at annual performance, and we can talk briefly about the difference between the two of those, that's performance, again, that you would not have had. But if you must look at some level of performance, the best level of performance to look at is annual performance, not annualized, annual. So what does that mean? Annual performance is year by year. So you're looking at what was the performance last year, 2016? What was the performance in 2015? So you're looking at each year in isolation. That's more relevant to the immediate past performance of the particular investment that you're looking at. When you look at annualized performance, that's looking at a period of time and annualizing that return out over that period. So if you're looking at an annualized return for the last five years or 10 years or 15 years, that's assuming that you were invested in that fund on day one of that five-year period and held that fund or investment for that entire time period. That would have been your return. Unfortunately, when you look at past performance and you look at annualized performance, those are often not the returns that you would have had even if you're in the fund because the fund could have had a great streak of performance for a short period of time, maybe early on or midway through that annualized performance period. And if you weren't invested during that time, you may have not had anywhere close to the actual performance of that fund. So I guess that in summary, in looking at performance, all of the performance, whether it's annualized for various periods of time or it's on an annual basis where you're looking at each year separately, it's, again, past performance. And this performance should not be looked at to indicate what type of performance you're going to have going forward. Your performance is your future performance. It's not the past performance of the investment. We'll move on to item number three here. So the, the third mistake that investors make is they overly diversify. So what does this mean when everybody out there is talking about diversifying your portfolio? So what that means is that typically investors buy a number of different investments. And let's just keep this conversation pretty simple today and talk about mutual fund or exchange-traded funds, more specifically probably on the mutual fund side. So on the mutual fund side, a lot of investors, they look at a lineup of mutual funds, and typically they have mutual funds in their 401k and certainly investing in them outside of their 401k. They look at, what are my fund choices? And when they look at funds, they're typically looking at, what are the names of the funds? How is the fund performing? They're not really looking at what is the fund investing in, unfortunately. And what often happens is individuals, investors, they over-diversify in their portfolio. So they end up buying 
some of the same exposures with multiple funds. So, for instance, if they bought a large-cap U.S. stock mutual fund, they don't need to buy two or three or four large-cap stock mutual funds because you're doubling up, you're tripling up, you're quadrupling up on your exposure to the same exact segment of the market or a country or an asset class. So the best course of action here is to buy one fund or one investment that covers each asset class in a portfolio. So again, our preference is to use index funds to do that because you know then you're getting the returns of the market you're investing in or the country you're investing in or the asset class in the portfolio that you're investing in. But at the end of the day, the idea and concept is not to overly diversify. You don't need, as I mentioned, four different U.S. large cap stock funds or three different U.S. small cap value funds. One fund in each category or each asset class is appropriate. Too many funds end up costing too much money, too many potential tax issues, especially in taxable accounts. So keep it simple. Keep one fund for each exposure, each asset class in the portfolio. And obviously, you know, look at funds that if you have three or four funds that have the same exposure for, let's say, large cap U.S. stocks or small cap value stocks, you probably want to look at the cheapest fund because that exposure is the same in all the funds for the most part. And that's why we're not doubling up or tripling up on the different fund exposures for each asset class. So now we'll move on to the next mistake that investors make. And that mistake is not controlling the things that you can control when investing. So what do I mean by this? I mean that at the end of the day, you can control a number of things. Obviously, you can't control what the markets are going to do. No one knows what the markets are going to do. We, we're not fortune tellers here. You're not a fortune teller. Uh, but you can control many things in your portfolio and the investment process that can lead you to potential investment success down the road. And those things are, what is your asset allocation? What investments did you select in the portfolio? Are you using active funds? Are you using index funds? You certainly can control your costs. If you're using an advisor, you can control somewhat what your advisor fees are, either by negotiating with your advisor or looking at a number of different advisors and comparing advisor to advisor. And then taxes are another aspect of this. So let's briefly touch on each one of these things. An asset allocation, you can control what is the appropriate amount of risk that you should be taking in your portfolio, and then don't take risk beyond that. You're exposing yourself, as we talked about in episode number one of Seeking Wealth, to risk that you don't need to potentially be taking. It's maybe risk you want to be taking and knowing what that difference is between want and need. The next area that we just mentioned was investment selection. So again, are you using index funds to get exposure in your portfolio, which are generally are low cost compared to active mutual funds? Also, they're intended to capture a certain segment of the market or the market or an asset class the next area is costs. You can control the cost of the portfolio somewhat. I mean, what uh, custodian are you using to hold your account? Is it a low-cost custodian? Are the transaction fees that the custodian charges, 
reasonable. Next area is at advisor fees. Advisor fees come in many shapes, sizes, and forms. And it's much too lengthy to get into this discussion today about advisor fees. But what you need to do is know what you're paying in total cost to your advisor. There's a lot of advisors out there that kind of like to answer the question based on the way that you're asking the question. So if you ask them what their fees are, they may tell you that I don't charge fees because they charge commission. But then they don't tell you what they charge in commission because that wasn't the question you asked them. So these are the types of games that are played in the advisory business. So what the key question is, is what is the total fees you would be paying to an advisor? And most of the time, if you are working with a fiduciary advisor, you're going to be paying them somewhere in the market rate of 1% or less or more. But kind of the average out there is about 1%. The next area that you can control is taxes. And taxes, let's just back up one minute before we get into taxes and go back to advisor fees. Because I thought another aspect of this is that there's also a lot of advisors out there that are charging low fees. So that's one thing that you need to look at is what fees that you're really paying to an advisor. Are the fees low? Or if they're not low, Are you getting the value that you should be getting for the fees that you're paying? A lot of advisors like to bake into their fee financial planning, ongoing advice, uh, preparing your will, preparing your trust, a number of different things that you don't need done all the time. So you shouldn't be paying for those on an ongoing basis as a percentage of your assets. So really looking at separating all those different fees out that an advisor might be paying you in an all-encompassing 1% fee and asking them, what does it cost just to manage the portfolio? What does it cost just to prepare a financial plan? What does it cost to prepare just a will or trust if they happen to be an attorney? Or what does it cost to prepare your taxes if they're a CPA or an accountant? So those are some things you want to be aware of when you look at advisor fees. So quickly going back to taxes, taxes is another expense to the portfolio. And these are things, again, that you can control somewhat. Are you taking unnecessary short-term capital gains in the portfolio? Can you wait another month or two to rebalance? Is the portfolio off a great amount where you can convert a short-term potential capital gain into long-term capital gains? Are you tax loss harvesting in your portfolio to capture tax losses today that you can offset in future years or even in the current tax year with any realized capital gains that you may need to take and rebalance in your portfolio? So in summary on item number four of mistakes that investors make, again, control the things that you can control. And of course, the one thing you can't control is the markets. But if you control the other things that we just talked about, you're setting yourself up for at least a better chance of succeeding with investing. So mistake number five. Mistake number five is paying too much in investment costs. So what does that mean? We talked about costs in the prior mistake, but we talked about costs just as overall cost of the portfolio. Let's break that down a little now. So you have expense ratios of mutual funds or exchange-traded funds. You have transaction fees that are being paid uh, to a custodian. And then obviously the 1% fee 
or more or less depending on the advisor that you're working with, if you're working with an advisor. And again, I encourage you to negotiate any fees that you may be paying with your advisor if they're towards that 1% range because that's a market rate that's typically that most advisors end up charging. And it's a rate that you know may not be appropriate for the level of service that you're actually getting and managing your portfolio. So look for expense ratios in mutual funds or exchange-traded funds that are low, especially if you're using index funds. These will be low. Uh, Transaction costs should be very low if you're working with uh, a discount brokerage custodian uh, such as Charles Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, uh, Scott Trade. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, No preference on any of those. Um, Just, you know, compare one to another and, and what their, their total transaction costs are. So we're not going to spend too much time here because we covered that in, in the prior mistake. But again, be aware, you know, paying too much in investment costs is a direct uh, hit on the portfolio in the short term and the long term. Investment costs add up. Again, whether those are you know, expense ratios you're paying to mutual funds, transaction fees, advisor fees, when you begin to add all of those fees together, these are pretty substantial fees that individual investors could end up paying that could cost you some significant uh, money in the long run and cause you potentially not to meet your goals at the time that you're expecting to reach those goals. So again, be aware and monitor fees. I can't stress that enough. Number six is splitting up your investments among multiple investment advisors if you're using an investment advisor. Investment advisors, by design, are supposed to be advising you on your investment portfolio and then even managing your portfolio depending on what kind of relationship you have with your advisor. Now, this is assuming that, you know, if you're listening, you're working with an advisor. Some people listening are not working with an advisor, and I apologize for covering this a little bit in depth here, but if you're working with an advisor, what I've seen over the years is that Individual investors think they're doing the right thing by diversifying advisors like they diversify their investments in their portfolio. Diversifying advisors is actually not a good idea for many reasons. First and foremost, most of the time when you diversify and have multiple investment advisors, one advisor doesn't know what the other advisor is doing. So what you have effectively done is you have now siloed out multiple investment advisors doing their own thing with certain portions of your total investment portfolio. So when you do this, it kind of defeats the purpose of hiring an advisor in the first place because now you have to manage these multiple advisors that you have hired and make sure that overall all of the advisors are working together to accomplish your overall investment plan that you're now responsible for because, again, as I mentioned, one advisor doesn't know what the other advisor is doing. And even if those advisors end up talking to one another because you give them permission to do so, uh, my experience has been it's not usually at the level that needs to be where everybody's always working cohesively. This also gets very complicated when you're dealing with taxable money and you hire multiple advisors because what ends up happening is One advisor may be taking capital gains, some are taking short-term, some are taking long-term. Another advisor is taking tax losses in your taxable accounts. 
Another advisor is managing one portfolio at one allocation. Another advisor is managing a portfolio at another allocation. So again, this puts the onus on you because it's your money. You have diversified amongst advisors to manage your money and provide advice that now you have to manage the overall investment plan, which is maybe what you were trying to get away from doing by hiring an advisor. So in my opinion, and working with individual investors over the years, hiring multiple investment advisors is never a good idea. So that's different than diversifying investments. It's even different than diversifying custodians that may be holding your portfolio, assets, and safekeeping. So item number seven, and this is kind of an interesting topic that uh, I want to talk about where investors make mistakes that I see, is dollar cost averaging, especially right now where investors may have some cash laying around or they just received an inheritance or they received a bonus maybe towards the end of the year they're going to receive. What do you do with new cash that you want to put into the market if you don't dollar if you don't put that money in a one lump sum? Uh, typically, the best course of action is to put that in in one lump sum, but if an investor wants to dollar cost average into the market, then develop a plan to do that. Most people that develop an investment plan also, if they're going to invest cash and they know they are over a period of time, they also develop a dollar cost averaging plan. So what does this mean? This means that you can invest money whenever you want, but if you're investing money kind of ad hoc, then you're investing it based usually on emotions and what the market is doing at the present time. So when you dollar cost average into the market and you want to do this over a period of time because you think the market is overvalued, undervalued, it's going to keep going up, it's going to hit rock bottom. I mean, obviously you don't know that, but you want to be cautious with your cash. So that's why you're thinking you want to dollar cost average. So when you do that, you need to come up with a plan because all too often what we end up seeing is we see that somebody puts money into the market and then they stop putting money into the market because they think, again, it's too high, too low, it's going to crash, it's going to keep going up, they're going to wait till it pulls back, they're going to wait till it stabilizes. I mean, there's all kinds of different buzzwords that people may use and, and emotions for why they are changing their dollar cost averaging plan. So it really doesn't matter what the plan is. The plan could be you're going to invest money at the first of every month, the 15th of every month, every other month, every quarter, semi-annually, annually. There's a lot of different ways that you can dollar cost average into the market. But the key here and the mistake that people make is not sticking to the dollar cost averaging plan. So again, stick to the dollar cost averaging plan if you're dollar cost averaging. But again, we typically advocate if you have cash and you're going to invest it, since nobody knows what the markets are going to be doing, typically just dollar cost averaging or putting money in a one lump sum, the preference would be putting it in one lump sum. Item number eight mistake that investors make is bull markets. So what does that mean? That means, first of all, we've been in a bull market now for the last eight and a half years, and it's been a good run. And again, we don't know, and you don't know, and nobody knows, even if they're writing about it or talking about it in the news, what the markets are going to do tomorrow, next week, next month, three months from now, nobody knows. 
So the fact that we've been in a bull market for the last eight and a half years, everybody is a genius. And what does that mean? That means that, you know, you're investing money. And at the end of the day, you really don't know how your money may be doing other than your accounts are positive or they're go- they have gone up in value. So when you're investing and you're investing without a plan, especially, that's a big problem, not knowing how your investments are doing in a bull market or even in a bear market. But we're talking about a bull market because we happen to be in that right now. So when you're looking at your investments and you're, you're trying to determine how well you're doing with your money, you need to know what your benchmarks are to the investments that you bought. So what does that mean? That means if you're buying a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund that invests in U.S. large-cap company stocks, then you should have a benchmark that you're benchmarking the performance of that investment to that is the same as how you're investing. So that way you're knowing whether your investment is performing in line with that aspect of the market or asset class or whatever area of the portfolio you are buying an investment in. Without a benchmark, you really don't know how you're doing. So just because your portfolio or a fund or an investment has gone up in value doesn't mean that you're actually getting the returns that you should be getting for that given asset class or style of the portfolio. So that's why without benchmarks, you're kind of really flying blind. Uh, You may be making money. Your performance may be doing well. But you don't know unless you compare it to a benchmark. So what we often hear in long bull markets uh, like we're in right now is that when someone asks you how your portfolio is doing, especially if you're interviewing investment advisors, uh, typically we'll hear that your investment portfolio is doing well. It's doing good. I'm happy with it. Uh, But then when you dig a little bit further under the hood, you realize that They may not have a benchmark that they're benchmarking the portfolio to, and it may not be performing as well as it should be performing in relation to how the market or an asset class or a style of the portfolio is performing. So just be aware that in bull markets, uh, everybody seems to be doing well, but are they really doing well uh, as well as they should be doing in relation to how the market is doing, again, how an asset class is doing or style in a portfolio. So, you know, take a look at your investments and, and dig out uh, how they're being invested in each asset class, what mutual fund, exchange traded fund, or individual stocks that you're buying in the portfolio, and then pull out some benchmarks that are typically. Uh, on the the websites of different mutual fund companies if you're buying mutual funds, on different exchange-traded fund websites if you're buying exchange-traded funds, and compare the performance of how your investment is doing to the actual benchmark itself to get a good indication of how it's performing. Mistake number nine, and this is a timely mistake because we're getting into November, December now of 2017, And again, we've had a great run this year, and and again, this eight-and-a-half-year bull market. There's a concept of buying into year-end capital gain distributions. So what does this mean? This means that 
when you're buying investments and investing in mutual funds and exchange traded funds, but mostly mutual funds is what we're talking about here, there's a concept that you could be buying into a capital gain distribution. So at the end of every year, typically December, usually about mid-December to the third week of December, mutual fund companies will make capital gain distributions to shareholders of record in those funds uh, at that point in time. And like I said, typically December, mid to the third week of December. So when you're buying investments, especially into December, you want to make sure that you're beyond the period of capital gain distributions so you're not buying into a year-end capital gain distributions where you end up paying taxes on capital gains uh, in the portfolio that you could have avoided by buying that portfolio uh, usually you know a day later, a week later, a couple weeks later and avoid it paying any potential long-term and short-term capital gains on year-end distributions. So that's something you need to be aware of. And usually all mutual fund companies, uh, especially large mutual fund companies like Vanguard, uh, will publish this information on their website, typically starting towards the end of November and certainly in the first part of December, what the estimated year-end capital gain distributions would be short-term and long-term for each mutual fund, and then also the important dates that you need to look at, the date of record, the ex-dividend date. uh, Those are all important to look at when determining when to buy into a fund to avoid uh, buying into what they call a year-end capital gain distribution. So the the last one we want to cover today is another mistake that investors make, and this is just concerning just index investing. Uh, A lot of people buy index investing. Certainly, uh, I'm a big proponent of indexing. That's how we manage money at First Metric. We're an investment management firm that I'm the CEO at. Uh, So this is a a concept that we, we get the question a lot of times of index investing. That's easy, right? I just go out and buy an S&P 500 fund and sit back and relax. Uh, Why do I need an advisor? Or even if I'm going to do it on my own, why do I need to buy more than the S&P 500? Well, that's an an important question. I think a question I'm going to spend a couple minutes on talking about here because investing in the S&P 500 is not a diversified portfolio, uh, even if you're buying index funds. So when you invest in the S&P 500, you're investing in large cap U.S. stocks, 500, give or take, U.S. large cap stocks, depending on what fund you're buying the S&P in. Some manage the fund by buying actual holdings. Some do sampling. There's there's different ways of replicating the index, but uh, we won't get into that today. But assuming that you're buying the S&P 500, you're buying a large cap U.S. stock index fund. So what does that mean? That means you don't have exposure to many, many different areas of the market as a whole. You certainly don't have international exposure other than the companies that are U.S. companies in there that are doing business internationally, that you'll have that exposure, but you don't have any direct international companies in the portfolio uh, that you have exposure to. And then also you don't have exposure to um, different asset classes such as small cap. You don't have exposure to 
different styles within other areas of the portfolio, like growth and value. Uh, you have growth and value in the S&P 500, uh, but that's typically about half of is growth and half of its value. So you don't have a bend towards anything in the portfolio. Uh, certainly, you don't have any fixed income bonds in the portfolio if you're buying just the S&P 500. Uh, bonds play an important role in a portfolio to manage and help control what level of risk you need to have overall in your portfolio. So simply buying an S&P 500 fund, sitting back and relaxing, you may think you're doing the right thing because you're investing in an index fund and it is low cost, but you're taking potentially unnecessary risk by not diversifying the equity side between international and U.S. and then further between different asset classes in the portfolio and then certainly not having fixed income as a real crucial element in the portfolio uh, because typically you want some level of fixed income, even if you're an aggressive investor, typically you want at least a position of around 20% equity in a portfolio, even if you're inclined to be very aggressive and have 100% equity portfolio. So it's just something to think about that, you know, often we get the question of, you know, indexing is easy. I can just go buy an index fund and then I'm all set. I don't need an advisor or I don't need to complicate this to to go out and, and invest my portfolio. But, you know, buying an index fund is one thing, but developing an overall global diversified portfolio using index funds and asset class funds is the correct way to manage a index-based passive investment philosophy and strategy. So, Keep that in mind as uh, you may or may not be uh, inclined to use index funds, but if you are, uh, just buying the S&P 500 is not necessarily the ideal strategy uh, in the portfolio. In fact, we don't buy the S&P 500 in our clients' portfolios because uh, we want exposure to the entire U.S. stock market, not just large-cap U.S. stocks. So something to think about. Uh, just another mistake is individuals get into uh, investing and designing a portfolio. So we come up with 10 today, and they're not necessarily the top 10. Uh, we tried to develop the list around the concept that some of these, as we talked about, were timely uh, because getting towards the end of the year, uh, year-end capital gain distributions, uh, dollar cost averaging potentially if you have year-end bonuses and a number of things that we'd already talked about on today's show. So again, it's not necessarily the top 10. And uh, in a future episode or maybe a future blog, we'll talk about more uh, investing mistakes that investors mista- uh, make mistakes in in their portfolio. I hope you're able to walk away from today's show with at least one nugget of knowledge and uh, hopefully can steer you in the right direction for making some of these mistakes that we see pretty regularly when we speak with clients and potential clients. So again, thanks for listening to today's episode of Seeking Wealth. And until next time, be safe. Disclosure statement. Do not use the Seeking Wealth show for any basis for any investment decisions. Instead, consult with a financial advisor, accountant, attorney, or conduct your own due diligence. Scott Salaski is an investment advisor representative and CEO of First Metric, a registered investment advisor, which produces this program and makes it available on its website and through other distribution channels. 
Any guests on the program are providing their own views and opinions and are not necessarily the views and opinions of Scott Selaski or First Metric. Nothing on this program should be construed as a solicitation or offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investment advisory services are only provided to investors who become First Metric clients pursuant to a written investment management agreement. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Furthermore, all investments involve risk and may lose money. For additional disclosure, please visit firstmetric.com forward slash legal.